From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. A year ago this month, a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, was a wake-up call for many Americans. It was a sign that white supremacist groups are a fixture in the political landscape of this country. Some of these groups have been around for decades. Neo-Nazis, skinheads, and of course, the Ku Klux Klan. A Klan bomb ripped apart Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church, killing four children attending Bible class. But the election of Donald Trump in 2016, and what many saw as his reluctance to denounce these groups outright, has given them a new sense of legitimacy. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. Our guest this week is Vegas Tenold, a journalist who spent six years embedded with white supremacist groups, interviewing their members, attending their meetings, covering their rallies. His book about the experience, Everything You Love Will Burn, came out earlier this year. Tenold is from Norway. It's a country which has seen its own share of white supremacist violence. Welcome, Vegas. I want to start by asking you how you got into all this. In my defense, I never decided to to spend six years. It kind of just happened by accident because what else was I going to do with my time? Um, my, my first... My first sort of intro to this was um, I, I did a, a, gra- a postgraduate degree in journalism at Columbia, and I needed something to to write about. And I've always been a little fascinated by the fringe and by the by the bizarre uh, and the little hopeless. So uh, w- when I read somewhere, I was just googling around, I guess, that there were neo Nazis in in Brooklyn. I thought that was well, that's that's fascinating, and. Um, I decided to 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 look into it. I didn't see them as any part of a large movement or or anything like that. I mean, we were talking about the the Tea Party at that time being the pretty much the the most extreme thing we had here in America. But I thought these guys were uh, were interesting more for their sort of weirdness and anachronistic nature than anything else. I thought, you know, who the hell still subscribes to this garbage in two thousand and eleven? So. Um, I uh, I tried to seek them out. I wasn't having much luck. I emailed a bunch of addresses and I left messages at a bunch of forums. But um, I didn't hear back until I think two or three months later when all of a sudden an email from a guy called Duke Schneider who uh, introduced himself as the captain of the SS Brooklyn Division uh, emails me and says, uh, you know, do you want to talk? Vegas, when you started looking into this, were you focused only on neo-Nazis, white supremacists now? Or had you fallen down sort of a historical rabbit hole, reading everything about Nazis in America from the 30s to the 70s to the present? I did. I mean, it it changed for me for me over time. I mean, at, at first, I really just wanted to do a story about these um these weirdos in Brooklyn, and uh, I went with them to to a rally in, in Trenton, New Jersey, and 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 that, my plan was to have that be it. But the more I wrote about about it, and the more I thought about it, the more interested I I become looking at this in a in a historical perspective and trying to trying to put it into a into a into a, into a larger context. And you know, another thing that happened was. After I'd uh, I'd done this initial story and I kind of closed the door on it a little bit, I went back to Norway for the summer of 2011, 
which, of course, was when uh, Anders Bering Breivik, the, the white supremacist terrorist, um, took it upon himself to to uh, to massacre uh, 77 of our best and brightest. And, and for me, and, you know, I think maybe I was like many others. I was naive about the dangers posed by the far right at that point. But it, it really it really brought home the threat and of and the inherent violence in, in this political ideology. So I did want to go further. And that's when I went back to America and I really sort of dove headfirst into this rabbit hole of, of white supremacy. So you go to this first meeting. What happens? So I first met uh, Duke Schneider um, at a deli in downtown Manhattan, and we talked. And he was this, I mean, he was a little bit of how I always imagined a Nazi would look. He was this sort of plug of a man. He came in wearing this wolf tank top, and he was shaved head. He's he's in his mid-60s, I would say. Um, But he was kind of friendly enough, and I explained that I was interested in, you know, not just writing about the politics, but also exploring the kind of people he hung out with and the kind of people he that belonged to his groups. So we started meeting. Uh, we would invariably meet in, in Sheepshead Bay. And it, it, was, it was kind of funny. He was extremely paranoid. They all were back then. I mean, these days, it's relatively easy to gain access to this group, these groups because they've 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 come to depend on the media for for exposure, but back then it wasn't so easy. So I had to meet this guy a bunch of times. We would always go. I would get on the subway. I would get to Avenue U Station and Sheepshead Bay, and he would be there under an overpass, sort of in the shadows. There were times he would even wear um, like a trench coat, like a like a very short, very fat, deep throat kind of lurking in the shadows in this and this trench coat, and we'd get into his Hyundai, and, you know, we'd crisscross the neighborhood a few times and always end up in the same diner, you know, five blocks down the street. But he would, he would, he said that's because the CIA was after him, or the NFA, uh, NSA, or the FBI, or the ADL, or the SPLC, or all these just sort of abbreviations that he would throw at me endlessly. Um, but I had a bunch of these meetings with him. We would have coffee and cake. Sometimes he brought his daughter and we would talk. And then eventually I was told that I'd been invited to come to their annual convention. Of course, there would be no telephones and no notebooks. And I wasn't told where we were going. So, you know, this one day in April, I showed up down there uh, without any idea where we were going. And I got in the car with them and we went to New Jersey and they had this big rally and they were they were attacked by Antifa. And um, it it sort of that was my first that was my first real exposure to to neo nazis in america so it sounds like you won their trust how did that happen well i think you know i had the luxury of just being able to spend a lot of time talking to them first uh i was um i was a student journalist i had no real deadlines i had no editors waiting for me uh so i was able to just sit uh, and explain who I was. I was extremely open with who I was and what my personal beliefs were. But I said, you know, listen, I'm not out to get you guys. I'm legitimately interested in in and why why you guys feel it's important to 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 believe the things you believe and to and to fight for the things you want to fight. So you know, I was constantly pushing back, but I, I think I was legitimately interested in what they had to say. 
what were these meetings like? What kinds of things were they saying? Um, I mean, it's different from what it is today, and it's also the same, of course. I mean, this being 2011, there was a lot of anti-Obama rhetoric and a lot of sort of slurs. And, and I feel like, you know, the, they were very much fighting or rallying back then to to try to take back something that they believed they had lost. Whereas after Trump uh, got elected, they felt very much like they were coming at it from a position of power more. So there was different. But other than that, you know, the the, the song and dance of these rallies are, are much the same as they are today. There's They show up, they have a big police presence, a police cordon, Antifa are there, they're being kept a couple of blocks away, and and there's just sort of shouting going over the police lines a lot. Um, the 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 rally itself, I mean, or the, the meeting itself was uh, surprisingly, you know, almost pleasant. These people see each other once a year, so they just kind of got together and talked and, and, and reminisced, uh, weirdly wearing replica Third Reich uh, Nazi uniform. So it was a very bizarre disconnect between the all all the super hateful, gross and abhorrent imagery and certainly things they were talking about, but also, you know, how's your grandma? How's work? I haven't seen you. It's nice to see your family. Let me see pictures. So it, it was a very, it was for someone who'd never seen anything like it before, it was a pretty bizarre experience. So that's your first rally. You're still in school. You continue to follow them. What happens next? Well, then I des- then I decided to start going further into this and looking further into what constituted the movement of, of white supremacy in America. Um, and it it got it got easier having spent. There's a little bit of overlap with these groups, not much, but everyone kind of knows the other. So. I decided to reach out to a KKK group after that. And um, it was easier because I'd been able to say, look, I, I spent time with the National Socialist Movement. Uh, you know, I think they found that I was fair. Will you guys let me come and just sort of spend some time with you guys? So I did that. And I went to this Klan rally in North Carolina, uh, which was just sort of an innocuous Klan rally, if there's such a thing. They had a cross lighting. We ate awful barbecue. I think they served possum or something. Uh, but there I met some skinheads uh, from the so-called blood and honor movement. Uh, and I started talking to them and I got invited to another thing. So it just sort of snowballed a little bit, I guess, uh, until I was sort of... Uh, I had a a wide network of of contacts in in the in the larger movement. Can you explain cross lighting what that means and and if you can explain that for us? Yeah, um, one of uh, the mistakes that it's easy to make when you first start covering the Klan, and it is a mistake that they find wholly offensive, is when you ask them, "So, where, when are you going to burn this cross?" or 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 something to that effect, and they get very angry and they take it very personally because to them they're not burning the cross they're lighting the cross um it's a it's a symbol of the light of christ in in the in the darkness um but you know it's 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 almost weird to have to have gotten used to these things i've been to i don't know how many cross lightings i've i've been to but they are 
you know, the the clan is a bumbling uh, bunch of fools who have very little relevance today in America. But once you see them put on those robes and you see that cross start burning in the darkness, it is terrifying because, you know, they are this symbol of of. Of, of hatred they're the you know they're the preeminent symbol of racism and white supremacy and, and hatred in this country so no matter how many times you see it it's scary and it's it's really disturbing when you say they thought you were fair what does that mean exactly what's balance in this context um i think it's a little bit of both and obviously a lot of these people aren't going to think you're fair regardless but i told them Straight up that, you know, I'm going to write what I hear and what I see. I'm not going to make up stuff. If you guys come across like idiots or if you feel like you guys are coming off bad, it's because of what you said and what you did. Uh, I'm going to push back, but I'm genuinely interested in in hearing what you say and and having having a discussion about it. So, you know, what I wrote... I think they found it. Um, I I don't want to say I don't want to say balanced, but uh, they found they recognized themselves in in what I in what I wrote. I think they didn't all love it, but you know, at least some of them were adult enough to recognize that this is what they said. They're going to have to stand by it. Did you come to like them in some way? Is it inevitable to care a little bit about these subjects you spend so much time with? These guys know. Uh, eventually, I met who would become the man who become the sub, the main subject of my book, Matthew Heimbach. I actually met him first at that Klan rally, but we didn't speak for a couple of years after that, um, and it took us a while to remember that we'd actually met. Uh, Matthew Heimbach was um, a, a different breed, I would say. He was the media liked him because he was personable. He was affable. He was well-spoken. He could be counted on to say outrageous things in uh, in a sort of friendly way. So he was always a good interview. Um, but, you know, he, he would talk a lot about that we need to take white supremacy out of white nationalism. My, my race isn't better than anyone else. Uh, it just so happens to be my race. Um, whether or not that was true, uh, I don't know. But he was interesting and sometimes even uh, enjoyable to to talk to. So I wouldn't say I became friendly with him either. But we had a different discourse than I did with you know your everyday Klansman or neo Nazi. It sounds like they became increasingly comfortable with you. But was there? Any moment, any rally or meeting where you felt particularly unsafe yourself? Yeah, sure. There were, I mean, there were a couple of times. There were some threats. Uh, I had a few guns pointed at me for 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 various reasons. But um, I mean, look, I was always very open with who I was, right? So I didn't want it to be a surprise to anyone that there was a journalist there. So most of the people there knew who I was, and they really didn't have that much of a reason to to be offended that I was there. The few times I got in a little bit of trouble is because there had been a misunderstanding. Someone had been told who I was or 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 why I was there. And also, look, I'm a I'm a white bald man. Uh I'm very low on their list of targets and enemies. I have 
female journalist friends uh, who are journalists who cover this beat. I have Jewish friends. I have I, I have African American friends who cover this beat who are, you know, their risk calculation is way beyond what mine was. So, uh, no, I always felt pretty okay in these in these uh, circumstances. So you're saying someone actually pulled a gun on you. Was it because he thought you were some sort of interloper, a journalist? What what happened? Yeah, there was a, there was a, there was this guy. We were going to a Klan rally uh, in um, Tennessee, I believe it was, and uh, my source within this group was a guy called Dan Elmquist, and he was the guy who had invited me to this. It was a it was a Klan funeral, and and just before we went out there that day, he was called away. He had to do something else. So going out there was just me, uh, Matthew Heimbach, who is a Russian Orthodox National Socialist and a fascist. Who, you know, he there's very little love lost between uh, anyone who isn't a Protestant and the Klan and this skinhead called Eric. So they didn't know us at all. And when we showed up there, there was there was no one there except this one big guy who comes over um, and he gives me. At the time, I didn't know he gave me a clan greeting. He said, Kiggy. And I said, well, it's nice to meet you, Kiggy. I'm Vegas. And it turns out he'd said Kiggy, which is short for a clansman, I greet you. And you're supposed to give him a secret handshake. And you're supposed to say Akia, which means a clansman, I am. I'm spilling a lot of clan secrets here in this podcast, but I'm sure they'll be okay. Um, so when I got that wrong... He became immediately suspicious. And then I started, you know, saying I'm a journalist and yada, yada, yada. And he'd been drinking all day, I think. And he didn't want me there and he didn't feel comfortable. So I just remember him putting his hand around my shoulder and sort of pulling me close. And for a second, I thought I was going to give get a hug, which was scary enough on its own. But then he reaches back into his waistband and he brings out this filthy old nine millimeter gun. And he just kind of holds it under my chin, uh, pushes it sort of up into my into my chin. And he says, you know, um, I've I've killed a lot more people than I've been to prison for. uh, And I've been to prison for killing people, you know, which is no doubt hyperbole. But it was a little bit it was a little bit scary at the time. It, it, It was over in a matter of a couple of minutes, I think. But, you know, these things happen when you when you deal with these kinds of people. So you're among them all the time. Does it tweak your own political views at all? Do you start to question your own place? I think, if anything, it it, uh, it reaffirms and strengthens your own politics because you're always, uh, you know, as they be- as they began began to know me and we would talk more, we would start having, you know, franker and franker discussions. And I felt more comfortable to push back even harder. And, you know, we got into shouting matches. And so, you know, once if if you're confronted by this all the time, then it really makes you reassess your politics and it makes you think about what it is about uh, socialism and the notion of equality and that that you that you'd like and that you appreciate and you know it it becomes a point of pride to to defend it and I, I you know I think uh, white supremacy and nationalism isn't an ideology that becomes you know more 
enticive the deeper you dig into it. I mean, the flaws just become more apparent. Uh, to me, white supremacy only works if you don't question it at all, and it hardly works then. So, no, ab absolutely not. I was never there was never any risk of of me going native, so to speak. But in an excerpt of your book that ran in the Guardian, you noted that you had never asked this main character his views on the Holocaust. I mean, yeah, and that was a that was a thing as well. As as I mentioned, Matthew Heimbach was at times fun and pleasant to talk about. And I noticed after a while that, you know, between talking to skinheads and talking to clans people and just straight up white supremacists, it becomes exhausting because there are only so many slurs and conspir conspiracies and just noxious things you can hear until you just want to shut down. So after a while, I realized that, you know, Am I, am I taking a break when I'm with Matthew? Like we're talking about Toto and we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons and Warhammer. And am I, am I sort of uh, using him as a respite almost between all this noxious stuff? And I thought for a second that, yeah, maybe, maybe I've become complacent. Maybe, I, maybe just because he is an affable person, I'm not pushing back as hard as I should or I'm not being as critical as I should. And I think that's a risk um, journalists run. And, and you know, I, I wanted to be open about that. I wanted to be open about my own failings in this respect and that it's something, I had something of a wake-up call and I think that's important. You mentioned that before Trump, there things were kind of in the shadows, that these white supremacists were having you meet under underpasses and zigging and zagging around to go to the same diner and there was a fear of the CIA. What changed after the Trump election? I think it changed well ahead of the, of the, of the Trump election. I mean, a, a lot of what changed as well is attention. We weren't paying attention to these people. They were always there, which is one of the things I find infuriating by the use of uh, with the use of the term alt-right because it implies that you know Richard Spencer and all these people came out of the woodwork and had this whole brand new thing um, and, and it really wasn't it's just the the same old thing that's uh, that white nationalists and white supremacists have been saying forever but um, I think something changed with the candidacy of Donald Trump, obviously, and one of the things that changed was that we started paying attention. But they did really feel all of a sudden like they had a voice. And it wasn't like that. I mean, I remember I went to the CPAC convention in 2015, I believe. And I was there and Matthew Heimbach had snuck in uh, with me because he wanted to heckle Rick Santorum. Uh, and we happened upon a speech by Donald Trump in the main hall. And by that point, he was a sideshow. Everyone was just there to see the coronation of Jeb Bush. Um, but we were sitting there and Donald Trump was talking. And Matthew Heimbach, who at that point was a large figure on the far right, he was just laughing. Like, look at this idiot. You know, he's he's a joke. He's never going to become anything. And then all of a sudden he wasn't. And I think he recognized that the far right in the country uh, and even parts of the Tea Party had ideas that resonated. Um, and I think they noticed that 
he was picking up on their ideas as well. So I think it was sort of a symbiosis. The two things fed on each other, and the more they fed, the more the far right uh, gained a sense of hubris. Uh, They felt like they had a seat at the table. So Donald Trump uh, didn't create this in any way. He is just sort of the product of it, if you will. You're from Norway. How similar are American white supremacists to European far-right groups you spent time with? It's the same, I would say. I mean, this this uh, this rise of far-right populism isn't an American thing. It is uh, a Western thing at the moment. Um, you see the same sentiment all over. You know, in Europe, they're not afraid of Mexicans. They're afraid of, of Syrians. And in other parts of Europe, they're not afraid of Syrians. They're afraid of... Eastern European. So I think there's this sense of fear that is sweeping across uh, Western country these days. And it's being fed by by politicians, by 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 populists. Uh, So, you know, it, it becomes this loop where politicians feed it and the movements they feed elect new politicians. So right now, we're in this really scary point in history where for some reason and you know i don't want to i don't want to downplay the 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 seriousness of of uh the 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 syrian immigration crisis but it is a, it is an immigration that europe is well equipped to handle but for some reason the 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 rhetoric is that this is too much for us this is something we need to fear this is something that's going to this that's going to take over our countries from within and it's the same rhetoric as you ha- have here with uh with muslims or with mexicans or with whatever so it's not a european phenomenon it's not an american phenomenon it is a western phenomenon it's slightly different in europe because there are predominantly parliamentarian system so the dynamic is a little bit different but the sentiment and the the what causes it i think is very much the same so often in the american media it sounded like charlottesville came out of nowhere but you seem to be saying that that's actually not true at all i think the media has become a lot better in the last year or so um of putting this into a larger framework and a a larger context. And, you know, I'm not the only guy who sort of saw this coming. I, you know, I wasn't some lone voice in the dark warning against Nazis. There were a ton of journalists and others who did this, who did this before me. But, you know, there there was a time when uh, there would be a neo-Nazi rally somewhere in America and all these journalists was kind of parachute in and then just write about Nazis in the street uh, and 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 that would be it. They wouldn't, you know, place it into a larger context. You know, the same group were here last year. They were larger last year, or they were smaller last year. What does that say? Or how has we heard? How have we heard this 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 rhetoric before? And you know, even though we're getting better, we're seeing a little bit of the, of the same thing today when people are writing are writing about and talking about the spectacular failure of the unite the right to rally yesterday and treating that as as a as a symptom of the relative health of the far right movement whereas it isn't i mean it's just a symptom of how despised jason kessler is in the movement it has no bearing on the general health of the movement uh, overall but i think we're getting i think we're getting better 
at at contextualizing and and seeing the larger picture. There's there's still a ways to go, but I think we're getting a lot better. But do you think spending a lot of time reporting on white supremacists on these rallies on the neo Nazis, do we risk elevating their stature? Do we do we give them too much airtime and you know make it seem like their numbers are larger than they are? I I get that argument, and it's something that I've wrestled with. Um, Mm-hmm. I think the way we address that as well is with, um, again, placing it into context and being critical. Um, what you, you, when it comes to platforming, and another term that gets thrown around is, is normalizing, uh, you don't platform necessarily by writing about something. You platform something if you just give it... Uh, and unobstructed access to your to your platform. Um, you know, we 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 gotta cover it. We just gotta make sure that we tell the whole story. One question that you've addressed a bit is the funding of these groups. Where is it coming from, and is it all domestic or is it also international? There's a lot of uh, head scratching about this and. You know, I I honestly don't know the whole story about this. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some groups, I'm sure, who are getting funding from elsewhere. The groups I've covered mainly, uh, I haven't seen much money at all. Like, they stay five people to a hotel room, and uh, whatever money they have, it's certainly not much. Um, There are all these rumors that Russia is donating to the cause and you'll hear sometimes people say like, oh, no, I have proof that Putin is giving material uh, aid. I haven't seen it. I don't think any of my colleagues mm-hmm. have seen evidence of any material aid. I once you know, had a secret meeting with a Russian who was supposed to give them money, but I don't think anything came with that. There's been examples of, of Russia helping out European groups. There have been, uh, uh, through various banks and intermediaries, money going from Russia to Marine Le Pen's uh, Front National mm-hmm. in, in, in France. But but here in America, not so much. I mean, I'm sure there are some groups who have sugar daddies. You know, Richard Spencer is a, is a rich guy. But um, I, I, I really don't know, and I don't think anyone does. There are a handful of candidates running for various sort of relatively local office or Congress who have espoused white supremacist-sounding ideologies. I mean, there are only a couple. There was one in California. There was one someplace else. Do you think we'll see more, or are you surprised by that? Is that something that you were expecting to see, that there's sort of actually joining the political ranks rather than fighting it and being quite transparent about the platform? So that's that's the thing when when people say that the alt right is dead or that the far right movement mm-hmm. in America is dying, as a lot of people have been talking about this spring. Um, mm-hmm. My friend Ryan Lenz, who used to be at the SPLC, talks a lot about, and he may, he he makes a great point when he says that the far right movement wasn't the end in itself. The far right movement is a vehicle by which to introduce far-right ideology and ideas into the mainstream, right? So the relative size of uh, a a rally isn't the point. The point is now we have these these, um, candidates all over America, and some of them are doing quite well. I mean, Steve West just beat out two 
two challengers in in the in the GOP um, pr- primaries in in Missouri. So the real threat of the far right is that they have made it palatable. They have ensured that these ideas, these anti-Semitic ideas, these anti-black ideas, these anti-LGBTQ ideas are no longer a third rail in politics. You can touch them now and it's it's okay. And do you think that, I mean, we've talked about this, the identitarians and keeping out migrants, and obviously it's not talking about Latin America, it's more talking about Syria and the migration, the kind of great waves of migration that have come since 2015 from North Africa and across the Middle East. Are they being advanced in the same in in the same tones, the same racist tones, the same xenophobic tones? Are they same are they quite as clear on the sort of idea of white supremacy? So when when Trump uh you know back in the back in the good old days when we were still outraged by this stuff uh, when he referred to uh, Mexican immigrants as, as rapists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all over Europe now, and in America as well, you'll hear talk of rapefugees, which are hordes of young, strong men running away in cowardice from Syria and from North Africa, to 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 come up and take advantage of, of of beautiful white women and children, that's the narrative they like to tell. Uh, so it's 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 absolutely the same. I mean, I would even say it's more vitriolic in 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 Europe because not only do they look different and talk different, uh, they're also you know Muslims. So you mm-hmm. have like this trifecta of of propaganda value to spout when you're when you're trying to uh, when you're when you're trying to uh, uh, recruit and when you're talking about this thing. So the 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 level of discourse in in Europe, I think, is 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 even uglier than it is over here. Well, Vegas, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your years embedded. Um, maybe we'll have you back soon. Thank you. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. I hope so. That was journalist Vegas Tenold. His book on his experience with white supremacists in the United States is called Everything You Love Will Burn. You've been listening to The ER. Our show is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. We're taking a short end of summer break, but we'll be back with a new episode on September 7th.